Hello, this is Rob Woods and welcome to episode 11 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. This is the show for anyone who works in charity fundraising and who wants ideas and inspiration for how to raise more money, really enjoy their job and make a bigger difference. And in this episode, if you want to get better at the skills and beliefs you need to understand your supporters, we've got a real treat for you. We're again looking at the crucial subject of how to gather insight in fundraising, and I'm so excited to be able to share the second half of my interview with the fabulous Leslie Pinder. Leslie is the Head of Supporter Experience at the British Red Cross, and when we sat down to find out her ideas to help fundraisers improve in this area, we found there was so much to say that there was no way it would fit into a half-hour episode, which is what I normally aim for. So if you like this one, please do go back and listen to more of Leslie's ideas in episode 10. But for now, you're about to hear Leslie's advice on several more important elements of fundraising insight, including how you get the skeptics in your organisation, including those more senior than you, to buy into the importance of gathering insight, how Leslie helps people embrace the need to be open-minded and brave as they search for insight, in spite of the natural human need for certainty, and ideas to make it less arduous and more fun for your supporters to provide you with valuable insight. I learned so much from my conversation with Leslie, and I hope you find it helpful too. This episode of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast is brought to you by the Bright Spot Members Club. As a practical alternative to one-off conferences and courses whose impact can fade all too quickly, the Members Club is an online resource that gives you ongoing access to a whole library of video training courses, monthly coaching webinars, and live training events. It's all designed to help you learn, enjoy your job, and raise more money. To join the 300 fundraisers already in the club, or just to find out more, go to brightspotfundraising.co.uk. We join the conversation as Leslie is weighing up the issue of when you really should seek help and get insight research done professionally, and when, as we're talking about for most of this episode, you could do some things yourself that will absolutely improve the success of your fundraising project. I think it's important to, to say that by no means do I think that you should never do big, large-scale research projects with professional research agencies. If you're trying to solve a big, complex problem or you're trying to make really big change for your organisation that really does require a huge amount of rigour, absolutely you should work with a professional research agency. If you want to understand who your supporters are so that day in, day out, you can have a bit of empathy and understand who you're creating for, you can do it yourself. And even if you do do big research pieces of work, I would always say that a research agency that brings the client in to observe the interviews, to be involved in the research, to help analyse the findings, that research will get used. A 200-page deck of graphs and quotes and photos will never get used, or it will by about three people, usually the people that were involved in getting the research done. Um, so, yes, there's always a space for good, robust, professionally done research by professional researchers, but you shouldn't also be afraid of, of having a go yourself. But just know that, you know, you don't want to make vast investment decisions based on 15 diaries it's pure it's about you getting a much deeper understanding about who you're creating for the number of arguments that you'd have internally about whether people like this or don't like this or whether somebody would respond to this or wouldn't respond to that the amount of time and money you will save by genuinely understanding your supporters genuine real life feelings and lives is like unsurmountable 
I, I can't I can't even come close to say how much time and money you will save and how many arguments you will save about about issues that we have huge assumptions about how people feel about certain topics and the only way you're ever going to know if you're right is by speaking to them and asking them yeah and I agree. It, it's there's so many arguments and difficult meetings we have because someone is giving their opinion on what is good copy or bad copy, mm-hmm. or what the name of the event should be, and mm-hmm. and often they're a person with importance or authority in the charity, and they're saying it based on them, and mm-hmm. they are just not the target market. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and that's still and probably our listeners. They know that problem only too well. What would be your advice if some of the solution is to get better quality insight and understanding into that supporter in order that the person who's got to sign off the budget, you know, has a more robust approach to it rather than just their own opinion? Do you have any tips on how they might go about actually making that work in practice? Oh, that's such a good question. I actually had a chat with an Insight colleague earlier today and we were talking about that moment where the the sceptic becomes the biggest advocate for the thing that you're doing. Um, And it happens a lot where you start, you you might start a research project. I did one with an organisation and and one of the most senior leaders just didn't buy into it at all. He's just like, oh, you're going to make decisions based on post-it notes. And so I know, really, we're not. and I think the only answer is for me, well, not the only answer, there's a couple of answers is um, find out, get all those people in the room and find out what they think the answer is. Get all those assumptions out, find them out, write them up in a big list and go, okay, we're going to go out and test some of these things. We might find that you're right. Cool. That's great. But let's go and check. Um, and that's good because it makes them feel like they've been heard. Um, and sometimes you, they will be right. And then that also means that you, you won't get that. Well, I could have told you that. And you're like, well, you did tell us, but now we know it's true. And therefore, when you say it next time, we're not going to argue with you. But the converse also is, you think you know the answer, but you might not. Um, and, I, and I think it's really important to get those fears and objections out early and listen to them and write them down and don't just dismiss them as, oh, God, uh, they're moaning again about it. You ha- they could be right. And that's just as valid as if they're wrong. Um, and then involve them, bring them along to interviews um, get them involved in, and not as like behind a glass window, but like in the room, taking notes for you, helping you out with research. Um, get them involved in the process and and show them your workings as well, so that they can see that there is thought behind it and rigor. And again, like I said earlier, you know, you're not going to just make one. I think we do have a tendency is like right, we're making a decision on this. We've made the decision. That's it. Um, and then we never change anything or look at it again for two years. It should be a, a constant development process. Like, we think this is what we found out. You still don't agree with us. Can we please just go away and test it then? What more evidence do you need from us to show you that this is right? Is it prototyping something? Is it taking it out and do something live? Is it a small test? Whatever you need, we'll go out and we'll, we'll try and find the evidence until you, you can feel comfortable that we're making the right decision. Um, I think that's the only, only way, really. Listen to them and don't just dismiss it. Yeah. Uh, so a couple of really smart things there. Surprise, surprise. If we genuinely involve them in the, in the process, yep. it's so much more likely uh, yep. th- that they're not going to be just evaluating it in a month's time when it's all, all done and dusted. And they're more likely to just intellectually respect the rigour with which we're approaching 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and similarly, and not just with senior stakeholders, with everyone. So when we kicked off that first project at, at the Red Cross, we had a hunch workshop that was with the data analysts that had done the data analysis for us. He did a big report, but we were like, no, come and tell us, like, what do you think it means? What do you think this is telling us? Which makes people deeply uncomfortable because they're like, but I don't know if it does mean that. I just think it might. And I'm like, cool, that's, that's fine. You don't need to know the answers. Um, and then we would ask the web analysis guy and the people who delivered the our welcome journeys and the direct marketing team like what do you think like what do you think the answer to this is what do you think the problem is here what do you think these people need and then as you start to build evidence that either confirms or denies it then they're involved in that process and and it's a, they're not just handed a document five five months later that says oh that stuff you said is wrong by the way um we're doing it this way now People are smart and they want to learn as well. It's just about being curious. Ultimately, it's just about curiosity and anyone can be curious. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO or, a, or an exec. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Yeah, well, so you say people are curious and I, 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 I do agree that all human beings have the capacity for curiosity. Yeah. I've been I'm doing my best to become more curious, to be, more value curiosity <laughs> as a thing I do. But the reason I'm having to try harder is I also think there's a thing in the human condition that likes to be right. Oh, yes. We, we, you know, we like right and wrong. I, I'm watching a, a TV programme at the moment, which keeps annoying me because it's all shades of grey and I, I want to know who the goodies and baddies are. <laughs> and uh, I recognise you know, my wife's much more mature in her attitude to story and art and life and that, and it doesn't bother her at all. But I do think this, this the attractiveness of certainty oh i can see why human beings need some level of certainty but uh, you know early in this interview you you said something which in a way was surprising to me which was there is never going to be one final right answer yeah i mean i guess that was always true but it's especially true at this time in history where socially politically economically everything is in so much period of change um, and yeah. i'd love your opinion on, <laughs> on that notion of human beings do, do what have you observed about some of your some of your customers your, your clients and they're them tempted to want to know one final right answer what have you le- observed about that and or you know a, any other response you've formed in this particular job where it's just it you need to believe the opposite gosh that's a hard question um so yes i completely agree certainty is is calming as humans, we like patterns uh, and for things to slot together nicely in our brains. And, uh, and, and I think that's one of the reasons why as a sector, I would say we're very good at looking to each other um, for, for reassurance and certainty. Um, so as a, I'd say as a sector, we're, we're, we're amazing at doing research into what other charities are doing. <laughs> Um, and what's happened in the past because that's stuff that has happened and that is fact but we depend on that way more than we you know we're looking constantly to the past and constantly to what other people have done that has worked for them for a sense of certainty to, to so that we don't feel like we're taking any risks and I think that's what's led to a uh, sector that looks identical and does the same all of our marketing is identical our our letters all look the same our our websites all have the same headings 
um, our our community fundraising events are all you know it, it, we we're we're all we all look the same because it, it, there's safety in that I think. And um, what I hear more and more from supporters is that that isn't meeting their needs anymore and they're not inspired by it anymore and they've become bored of it. But they, that's the only way of giving they know because it's the only it's the only way of giving we're giving them. And that, that becomes self-perpetuating because people think, well, but that's people respond to that. So therefore, we should keep doing that. And it just becomes self-perpetuating, despite the fact that a lot of our donor bases are shrinking because people are done with that. And we've not worked out a way to offer them anything different because we want certainty. So we're waiting for the next thing for somebody to do that we can all jump on and copy. Um, but the world just doesn't work like that anymore. And, and, it, and so the approach that we take, which is asking questions constantly, is really unsettling. Um, starting a project, if I start a project, somebody will always say, so what's going to come out at the end? And I can never give them an answer. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if this project that we've, uh, we're going to be kicking off in the new year is going to mean a new email journey or a completely new way of thinking about support. It might mean we use telephone in a different way. Um, I, I don't know the answer. And that's really unsettling. And it's unsettling because we're not built in organisations for uncertainty. We do year plans, you know, six months before the end of the year before, which puts us in boxes for 12 months that doesn't allow space for uncertainty because we, we can't fit, we can't change our resourcing and our budgets and um, we can't pivot because if we pivot, it takes three months of decision-making um, and sign off. And by the time we wanted to pivot, it's too late. And, you know, so it's just at the moment, I think we're in a real transition period as a whole sector of moving away from certainty to uncertainty and it is unsettling and it's hard, but there are processes and ways of thinking that can create create comfort within that uncertainty, if that makes sense. So design thinking and, or service design um, has an approach to uncertainty that makes certainty, uncertainty uh, comfortable. Yeah. But I don't know if that makes sense, but you know, there's ways of finding yeah. a way through uncertainty that is, has a process behind it. Just random uncertainty and like, yeah. You know, I, I, I find comfort in the process of finding answers, um, which research can help you do. And, I, and the amount of projects that I've seen in different organisations where you're almost having to undo the previous work that was done because somebody just said, this is the answer and the answer is this and we're just going to do it without any research. And then it doesn't work um, because they wanted a firm decision um, and it, the world doesn't work like that anymore. So that was a bit of a diatribe. Anyway, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, as you can probably tell. One of the big learnings for me during this interview and trying to get my head around what it is you do and how you operate and the mindset you have to get these results that you get is the biggest thing is it takes courage. If it's risky to, to lean into and accept a level of uncertainty of what we might find out, the biggest thing I seems to me more than time, more than money, more than anything else. It's, it's a, a brave approach to be willing to jump in, not knowing what's going to happen. But the good news is I I'm hearing you don't just have to have this blind courage that not many of us are, are blessed with. What I'm hearing is you in your own career have managed to do it more and better than most. And now you help your colleagues and teams and departments do it better than most because there is um, a reassurance in the process 
So the big picture, it is risky, but the more we believe in the process, the more we're holistic about it, the more we design the correct research approach depending on our particular situation, the more you make use of the process, each one of those smaller chunks actually enables us to take on the risk. Have I broadly understood your situation? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the mistakes I've made in the past is, a, is um, forgetting how frightening it can be. I still find it terrifying, to be honest, but I just have to hang on to that process. But it's a process I really know now. And I forget sometimes that it's still new for other people. So always just re-articulating what the process is that you're going through at every stage of a project is really important, not just at the beginning. And just constantly reminding people, like, we're doing it in this way. These are the questions we're trying to answer. We're so lucky at the Red Cross because there's my team that is using this approach to you know, exploration through insight and asking questions and trying to solve problems through curiosity. There's also, we have a fundraising and innovation team who use the same approach. And then we have a central hub that are really looking at how we are people-centered in our services. Um, and we've got service designers joining all the time. So this language of curiosity and problem solving and insight-led uh, work is, is bec it's becoming quite commonplace now in the organization so people are getting more and more comfortable with it and more and more used to doing it um which is amazing and and i, I think that's going to just increase um as as we move into our future which is all about being people-centered so yeah we're I'm, I'm lucky to find myself somewhere where i'm not just a lone person shouting in the background and um, it's it's a uh, it's at the heart of everything that we're we're trying to do now which is amazing yeah and and uh, it, it's so impressive to, to see how that is in your culture more now and in, in your in your process but if many of our listeners are in either large organizations that aren't at that level yet or frankly more of the listeners are going to be in medium-sized or especially small organizations and they might be the sole fundraiser or they might be what part of a small team what would your advice to them be if either there's a particular event or mid-level segment or project they're planning and they've realized they should try to work more this way rather than ju jump in and do the project without the research what would your advice be to that listener as to how they could take on more of your mindset and more of your process without this bigger resource oh that's such a good question where to start um so I'm, I'm putting myself, I'm closing my eyes and imagining, I'm putting myself in the shoes of previous Leslie who worked at a kind of small, medium-sized charity and what would I have done differently when I set up a, a new event? Um, I think the best thing you can do is, is really try and think about who are you creating this thing for um, and, and how can you find out how they feel about it? Uh, if you're creating a new event or you want to look at how you might improve a, a, a stewardship mailing that you're doing, contact the people that you're sending it to or that you're inviting to the thing and talk to them. And don't ask them, how do you think we should improve the event straight off? Just find out why they support you, what they care about, what else is going on in their lives, how they support other organisations. And then start talking to them about, oh, do you remember if you came to that event last time? You know, how did you feel? Um, what did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? Just speak, just speak to them. And I'd pick 10 people and, and see what they tell you. And then uh, and you'll be amazed at how it might uh, surprise you. Um, there's a, 
I mean, design thinking is basically the, the thought process I'm talking through, and there's loads of brilliant online resources about design thinking um, that you can you can access for free. Um, so it might be worth any organisation just going and having a look uh, at that stuff uh, and seeing if there's anything you can learn from it because it it it's it's a mindset that doesn't really require resource or budget. It's just a way of thinking. So it could be really simple of of marking out you know a couple of hours to just make six or seven phone calls yep. to, to to people who've done that event in the past or the kind of person who would be doing that event in the future simply the act of actually making those calls and having some structure to the way you organize that conversation and mm -hmm. being disciplined in recording it it could yep. be as simple as that that could save you you know a great deal of wasted time and effort if you had not done now there's more you could do as well and hopefully once you do that you'll find it so valuable yeah that you do a bigger process as well but at its simplest that's what you would encourage our listeners to do more of in their project that they're looking at at the moment yeah absolutely and even if it's too late so if you've already done a thing you can you can do that research during or after as well you don't have to do it before so if you're at an event speak to people talk to them and find out how they felt what they felt about it and get their feedback but yeah absolutely um as much as you can make the effort to to go out and speak to real life actual humans um and don't just ask them about your charity um and what you want to hear have a conversation and, and listen so so that's another key learning point i've, I've taken from this interview leslie is <laughs> instinctively we might think we wanted to ask about our charity or their approach to our event mm -hmm. and the key thing that you're constantly trying to do is is not be so self-focused but focus on them and their life and yeah. their feelings to a particular issue or cause mm -hmm. but not their, necessarily their approach to your charity or your event and yes. more of those questions are more likely to be enlightening and therefore in due course improve your product rather than the knee-jerk, what do you think of our thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's stuff that you can test. Don't ask an interview what you can learn by testing. So, like, do you prefer this subject line, A or B? Like, don't ask those questions, just test it. <laughs> just send one, have to, you know, there's questions you can just find out by testing. Ask the questions that you can never get the answers to from a survey or, a, or a, a, an A-B test. The, the why, the why underneath. Their behavior is what you want to find out not their behavior because you can see that from what they're doing yeah. already yeah thank you uh, one question that occurred to me and i often ask people on the podcast this is this um you've given so much good ideas and tips so i, I better understand your mindset now and some tools i wonder if there's one example or or two that stands out either from when you've been at red cross or you mentioned before at breast cancer now could you just give us like a, a mini case study or example of, of a question that needed more insight and really top line what your process was? And crucially, I'm interested in how that might have led to something different being done, how the, how the stewardship piece changed or you did then explore a market in a different way. Is there an example that springs to mind so that we've got a, we can then see your overall process through that mini example? A previous example, okay. At Breakthrough Breast Cancer, we did a piece of work around, um, actually it was, it was Breast Cancer Now by that point actually, and we did a piece of work around um, 
uh, tribute funds and uh, people who give in memory of somebody. Um, and through that piece of work, we looked, there was, there's a lot of off the shelf platforms that you can use for tribute funds and in memory giving. And, uh, and they were very much chosen because they gave you all the functionality that you thought people would want. It, it, it integrated well with your database and it was very just you know you just off the shelf or you would use just giving or a similar sort of off the shelf platform and what we did is we went and spoke to and this was a, a relatively small number of people we spoke to around about 10 people who had tribute funds with the charity and and talked to them about what it meant to them and why they set one up what it meant to them why what how they used it and how they revisited it um, and, and the emotion behind it. And we realised that really it, it wasn't necessarily about all singing, all dancing functionality, um, but the messaging and the heart of what they were trying to do and, and why their friends and family would go and make a donation and what it gave them emotionally at a point where they were feeling incredibly uh, vulnerable and... Uh, when there was a lot going on in their lives, the simplest simplest we could make it, the better. The more heartfelt we could make it, the better. And crucially, the one thing that came out above and beyond anything that we didn't expect was that it's not about the charity and it's not about the person setting up the tribute fund. It's about the person who passed away. Um, and we used that insight um, both to help design uh, a platform that was then used um, and we worked with a, a, a digital agency that actually hadn't really worked in the charity sector before, um, who helped create, who, interestingly, the, the digital agencies from the charity sector said, oh, you should, it's impossible to set up a platform like that. You might as well just use one that already exists. And these guys were like, of course you can. Um, and they, they continued throughout the process of developing that uh, platform to um, bring those tribute fund holders into the design process to make sure that it was still reflecting what they felt that they needed. So they helped with the build of the actual platform, but then on the other side, it also impacted the creative and the way that they, um, the language that they used uh, and, and the design agency that we worked with on the creative side of it came to all of that, uh, the interviews with the tribute fund holders and, and, and spoke to them and were partners with us rather than just getting a brief and told go off and do that thing mm. um, and so it both shaped the messaging that we used and then also the platform that we used I don't know actually now if it's still live if I'm brutally honest because it was a few years ago before uh, before the most recent march <laughs> so um, but it, that was really powerful because it changed our assumptions that you can't set up your own platform, that the platforms already existed were created for the tribute fund holders, which they were never done. They were created for the charities, not for the people who had a loved one who passed away. Mm. Um, and, and I think that was that was a really powerful uh, and actually quite small um, piece of research that just completely flipped our, our, our thinking around, around it. Um, yeah, and it, it's one that I'm quite proud of um it was myself and, uh, and Lawrence who was our tribute fund manager at the time that worked on it and he, he did the bulk of the work um I have to confess but it was a it was a it was a really good project that we worked on and and you happen to know how how it landed and and whether it it you know resonated I mean instinctively I'm, I have a strong sense that it did if it was more designed by what their real reasons but did at the time did you happen to notice that Lawrence was pleased with, with how it went 
Yeah, and the and the people that were involved that held tribute funds as well were were pleased with the the outcome as well. I mean, you know, that's a, an approach that I, I used with another organisation around legacy a legacy program as well. The the insight that we got from people that had pledged legacies to them then became like design principles for that organisation and every piece of literature or every communication that they sent. Um, in fact, the same design agency used that insight. As like I kind of have we really delivered these supporters' needs in every single thing that we deliver to those people, um, and again that um, flipped a lot of the assumptions that they had about what legacy pledgers actually wanted, and what they found out was it really wasn't what they thought it was, and they were overcomplicating it. Um, so yeah, and that did really massively uplift response to any sort of mailing that asked for any kind of response or engagement. It massively increased. So. Yeah, great examples. Thank you, Leslie. Uh, we need to finish soon, but just before, if people want to to get in touch, I know you're quite uh, active on Twitter. Is that the best mm -hmm. way place people could find you? Yeah, so, probably. What's your name? Yeah, I'm at Skipinder. Um, S K I P I N D E R. Uh, long story about where that came from. Um, on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, but I'm a bit rubbish at LinkedIn. So Twitter is probably the best place for for me. Or you can email me at the Red Cross, which is Leslie Pinder at redcross.org.uk. Fantastic. So Leslie, thank you so much. So many good examples, ideas, tips. Sorry for my left field questions, which really made you think and try and. <laughs> have to mull things over and um i so appreciated the thought you gave to those answers and 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 how generous you were in sharing some real examples to bring it to life i look forward to catching up with you at some other conference somewhere in the world um best of luck uh, in your continu continuing role at british red cross but thank for now you. thank you so much for appearing on the podcast pleasure thanks for having me thank you leslie bye-bye bye-bye well i hope you found this conversation helpful if you want to go back to the key ideas we explored this time, there are a couple of options. Firstly, if you're already part of the Brightspot Members Club, we've posted the full interview there, including a final section in which Leslie shares further wise advice gleaned from what she's learned in her career so far. And if you're not in the club, don't worry, you can find notes summarising key takeaways from the episode, as well as details for how you can access the Brightspot Members Club on the blog and podcast section of our website which is brightspotfundraising.co.uk. If you found today's episode helpful, please remember to hit subscribe today so you don't miss out on any of the other sessions we've got coming up. Finally, thank you so much for listening. The habit of continuing to learn throughout your career is something I've seen in all the high achieving fundraisers I've interviewed in the last two decades. But I also know how hard it can sometimes be to find the time to do this in practice. And I have so much respect for people who manage to do this. I look forward to talking to you next time when we'll be sharing more ideas and bright spot stories to help you make progress in your fundraising. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.